man-made climate change is a lie or it's a hoax invented by the Chinese or whatever people <laughs> want to say. But actually in the UK... What sort of idiot says that? <laughs> <laughs> they use a pig tan. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. Matt Hope and Chloe Farland from DSmog UK were our guests in today's show. They've been doing some incredible reporting on the links between the US climate denial lobby and the web of pro-Brexit think tanks like the IEA and the Taxpayers Alliance. We had some really interesting chats about the reporting they've been doing, the implication of think tanks holding influence with the UK government, as well as the political and economic issues of dealing with climate change. Before we get started, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Facebook, on Twitter, you can find us on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. So here's Matt and Chloe. Matt, Chloe, thanks for agreeing to chat to me again. <laughs> so we know that the, the IEA have been accused of offering cash for access to government ministers such as Michael Gove, Steve Baker, Liam Fox, uh, to donors in America who are linked with the climate denial lobby. Do we really think that this is acceptable? Is this something that's just to be expected in politics? Is this just the way it works? Or is, is this something we should be like genuinely concerned about? I mean, just this, to say, you know, straight up, it, it it's not par for the course. Um, and it certainly shouldn't be par for the course, you know. Funders are meant to fund think tanks for thinking. You know, they're meant to be funding them for their ideas, not for the people they've got access to. The idea is that, you know, those think tanks go away, create policy recommendations, and that report lands on the desk of the politician. They don't end up with a funder knocking on the door of the politician instead, which is essentially what the the, the report into the IEA um, and the revelations there were, were showing what happened. Um, you know, it's, it's really important that there is this separation between the people who are funding what are meant to be you know, think tanks, places for, for policy IETs to gestate and interesting things to come out, and the people who fund them and the politicians that those recommendations are meant to be passed on to. Um, I'll just add to that that the um, the IEA has actually denied giving cash for access. Really? Uh, it has completely denied it. And actually, the IEA's response to the whole, to the Guardian's investigation is a really interesting one, because for the IEA, there is no problem. The IEA has very strong relationship with American donors, and it actually boasts about its uh, access uh, to ministers and its very strong links with uh, Michael Gove, Liam Fox, Steve Baker. It's very proud of that, and that's something it actually sells to its funders. That's what it. That's what the IEA responded, and there there isn't a problem with that, according to the IEA. Now, actually, I think that is where the problem occurs: is that we are allowing these things to become the norm. And we are not scrutinized, there isn't enough scrutiny um, on the, those links between ministerial access and the funders. And actually, at the core of that, there is a, a real risk to damage democracy because those American funders are having such a powerful uh, and strong influence among the UK government and some of the key members uh, in both sort of making that policy at the moment that the risk is that. Brexit policy, free trade policy is now being made by US donors rather rather than by elected members of Parliament in the UK. How much influence do you think they, they really have on policy? Because it's it's all very well and good, Michael Gove or someone agreeing to sit down with someone and, and have a chat. But 
is it is it just being used as a, a selling point to get to pull in more donations for for the IEA or for other think tanks who are you know maybe offering something similar? Is is that like is it a real influence that they're selling, or is it just like the meeting, or is the meeting con- like concerning in the first place? I think I think the key point really there is that we don't know exactly how much influence they're having, but that of course then leaves the door very much open for them having an awful lot of influence, you know. And again, what investigations we've done and others have done have shown is that actually sometimes you end up with these people essentially writing political briefings and policy briefings that the politicians then just put their name on top of, or policy recommendations that they just put their name on top of. You know, of course, think tanks want their their views to be heard and their, their ideas to be listened to, which is why they promote the you know these links they have with the politicians. And it's fine if the politicians are listening to those ideas and then going away, having conversations among the civil servants, you know, having the conversations with their democratically elected peers and then coming up for recommendations. It's not okay if an unelected official who has been paid by someone with an interest is writing a letter that a politician's name then appears at the top of. So that's where the difference lies. And at the moment we just don't always know. At the di- at the moment it's really, really murky. And as, as Chloe says, it's very hard even to scrutinise this stuff because the transparency laws and transparency regulations just aren't strong enough for us to really know exactly what is going on. Mm. It is it is concerning. Like something that, that I really came across in the last sort of, 18 months was um, just how many different sort of educational charities, um, in inverted commas, had been uh, sort of shut down or by the Charity Commission specifically or sort of just like closed doors as soon as an investigation was opened into, you know, whether they were actually educational i know legatum are, are under investigation at the minute as far as i'm aware i'm not sure if that's come to any fruition as of yet um i, I can't imagine the charity commission has massive resources at their uh, uh, disposal when hmrc can't even get the, the money they want <laughs> <laughs> but how, how much of a of a problem do you think it is that these unelected people are are trying to influence policy because arguably and we have a really like blatantly obvious system in Northern Ireland at the minute where we've got no government and the civil service is just running things for us. And they're unelected. They they have no sort of stake in, in like what's best for the people. Like is 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 policy being influenced by institutions and, and think tanks really that different from policy being influenced by the civil service? I think that's a really good question. Um I would just answer to that that I think the civil service the civil service as a whole, they may have um, some small individual interests, but as a collective, they do not represent one big interest that they would be pushing for. Mm. On the contrary, when we look at think tanks like the IEA, their donors and their funders have one big interest, and they want a free trade deal between the US and the UK. They want GM beef, they want chlorinated washed chicken, and so on and so forth. And that's the one interest they will be pushing for. Um, and and they they're pushing for that beyond beyond the public good and actually even beyond the policy debate. So what we found is that think tanks should be broadening the debate. They should be bringing new ideas to the table. They should be presenting um, research to politicians and to the public in a very open and transparent way. Um, the IEA and others uh, have actually operated completely in the opposite way, in that they are narrowing the debate. They are repeating over and over the same very narrow, very um, radical in some instances arguments. And this is not opening the debate, but it's closing the debate. Um, and, it's, and it's creating a very small tunnel between those American funders and the UK government and senior members of the Conservative Party. 
Um, and I believe that that's where the problem lies. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Just to reiterate what Chloe says, you know, civil servants aren't paid by a big private company that has a big, you know, interest in a particular policy. You know, they are the people. That's why it's okay. You know, they're paid by the government to do a, an administrative job. You know, they're, they're not, in theory, at least working for a fossil fuel company, for example, setting energy policy. So that's fundamentally where the difference lies. And again, as the, all the investigations that we've seen recently have come out have shown, you know, it has a direct effect. You know, if your money is coming from a particular organisation that wants a particular thing, the chances are that will be delivered. Now, something you mentioned before we started this recording was the idea that we're sort of living in, a, in quite a policy-like climate. Do you think that the the influence that think tanks like the IEA, I hate singling them out because there's there's loads of them, but they just keep popping into my head, especially because <laughs> we had the Greenpeace investigation into them. And all credit to Greenpeace and The Guardian, like great piece absolutely, of work. Absolutely. The Guardian has been just on it for the past 18 months. Mm. It's like... Um, I used to, I didn't used to be such a big fan of theirs, but like they, they've really, <laughs> like really... Their investigative credentials are, are, are fantastic. It's great just to see people still uh, in print in print papers, still pursuing uh, great investigative journalism. But do you think that these think tanks are are causing the sort of policy light environment that w- we live in, especially surrounding Brexit? Like there was very little written pre referendum about what the exact plans were going to be. Like by design, obviously, to because it's much easier to sell an idea when it's vague than it's specific but is is that the reason that we're, we're now in this situation or is it just because no one actually knows what the policy should be you know i think there's definitely a, a vacuum and of course when there's a vacuum people step into that and people get paid quite well to be there ready to step into that um so yes i think the fact that we live in a policy light environment and frankly no one has a clue what's going on is certainly helpful to these people because they can go and sell themselves as people who do know what's going on and this is what we saw particularly with people like shankar singham who well his credentials are interesting but they certainly wouldn't mark him out as a brexit expert However, he has fantastic access to the UK government now as a Brexit expert because he sold himself as that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, absolutely, I think this policy light environment allows people to come in and do that who perhaps wouldn't have been or would have been on the fringes of the, the debate before. So I, I certainly think that has an impact. And what we at DSMOG UK have also been reporting on is that um, there's been a collusion of several, actually, right-wing neoliberal free market think tanks um, including the IEA, but also Taxpayers Alliance, um, leave, um, uh, leave Means Leave. Uh, there's been Brexit Central, uh, part of UKIP office. Yes, these organisations have been working together uh, out of an office at 55 Tufton Street, which is also where the Climate Science Denying Global Warming Policy Foundation is located. They've all been working together to push one message for hard Brexit, in some instances, instances a no-deal Brexit, for a UK-US free trade agreement, um, which would allow, things, which would lower food and environmental standards. They were pushing for deregulation, um, and so actually here again we've got this we we've got this issue of there is a vacuum, and we have a multitude of several organisations which claim to be independent one from the other, which are actually all working together and have mounted this coordinated campaign to push for one single message of a hard Brexit. Now that's skewing the, the, the debate around Brexit and it's actually taking a lot of space within that, that policy vacuum. Mm. Now when you talk about the sort of web of, of think tanks, it, it really makes me think about 
so the first interview we ever did for this podcast with, was with a woman called uh, Jen Senko, who did um, a documentary that, uh, if you haven't seen, definitely recommend it. It's called The Brainwashing of My Dad. <laughs> um, and essentially it was about her experience watching her dad become obsessed with like right-wing conservative talk radio and Fox News in America and sort of documenting like why on earth this happened. And then she started looking into it. And then all, all of a sudden she had hundreds of people calling her being like, I had the same thing. I had the same thing. Like I had the exact same experience with like family members just becoming more extreme and angry. And that's why she used the term brainwashing. But it she, she ex- like explains the story of how right-wing think tanks in America built up this set of institutions of um, of think tanks, of, of um, policy groups, of, of research groups, of, of publishing houses to all legitimize their arguably very extreme views on how the world should be run, like the very, very, very libertarian free market sort of let corporations do what they want sort of style of thing. It really like... As soon as I, I started looking at your reporting with the sort of web, especially the visual web that you were putting up, which was fantastically helpful, because um, I find it really difficult to try and <laughs> visualize everything going on at once. It's mm-hmm. like, do you think that there can be comparisons drawn, given that there's a lot of the same sort of donors and, and, and people involved? With the US? Yeah. Com- definitely. I think actually in a way, what's um, what's happened in the US is slowly happening in the UK. And we... Um, we've done several pieces looking at this transatlantic network and how and how those people and organisations in the US are starting to influencing um, and coming over to the UK. Uh, we've we've seen that Boris Johnson and um, Steve Bannon have had exchanges. We know that uh, Liam Fox is uh, very involved with uh, people like the Heritage Foundation and others. Uh, we know that the Trump officials and the Trump team are close to some of um, Fox, to, to Fox himself and some of his advisors. So these links are getting stronger and stronger. And now there's actually a common economic interest between these people of a US-UK uh, free trade deal. Uh, the US has always been, the Trump administration, so I should say, has always been pushing for Brexit and supporting it um, and having this very strong anti-EU stance. And so I it looks like those organizations in the UK are looking at the US and are looking at that model and at how those think tanks and organizations and powerful uh, private interests have succeeded in um, sharing their worldview or at least influencing policy in that way. And they're definitely, it looks like they're definitely turning to the US for inspiration. Yeah, and just to pick up one extra point that you, you made there about the media's role in this. So, you know, Chloe's absolutely right. We are, you know, I would actually say rapidly starting to... to construct a US type system over here and a large part of that is the media and a large part of that is you know you have these these outlets springing up that clearly have very strong ideological interests so you know Brexit Central for example are a really interesting example mm-hmm. you know they, they promote themselves as media but you That's- know no, it's like Matthew Elliott's. Group. So Matthew Elliott, I believe, yeah. is the editor larger than. But you know, if you just look at their staff list, they, there's this revolving door between the people who worked on a referendum campaign, a political campaign. Mm. A lot of them are vote leave. Some of them, are, some of them, are others. Darren Grimes, who is you know obviously being investigated, mm. you know has been investigated and, and found uh, guilty of wrongdoing. And illegally but, crowdfunded is uh, is fine. And uh, exactly, and is now trying to crowdfund his way out of trouble. Um, you know, is, is on that staff as well. And, you know, they, they put themselves forward as a media outfit, yet they're full of people who worked on, you know, a very controversial referendum campaign alongside um, politicians. Um, and, you know, Chloe can speak more to this, but there's other groups, you know, for example, the Economist for Free Trade. So we just, uh, we're just doing some more digging into this group, which is emerging. 
or the Economists for Free Trade, initially called Economists uh, for Brexit. Um, and it was uh, initially set up by uh, Jared Leons. Uh, and it's basically this uh, group of independent economists, or that's how they, at least they call themselves. Um, but actually, when you look into them, they are not independent at all. Um, most of their advisors are millionaire businessmen with significant private interests. Uh, one of them, for example, is, uh, say, uh, David Ord, um, which is huge and is going to play a really important part in a post-Brexit world when we're going to have probably all these trade deals and imports and exports coming in and out of the Bristol port. Mm. Um, so there's there's all these people who are tied up to this uh, so-called independent uh, independent organization of economists. And alongside that, you have um, a lot of people who vote, who worked on the Leave campaign, uh, uh, so inc including John Longworth, for example, who's one of the key big figures of uh, Leave Mean Leave and, and, and other things. And alongside them still, there are all these media people, uh, people like uh, Liam Halligan, who's one of the, he's a columnist for the Sunday Telegraph, Tim Montgomery, former Times columnist and Unheard and founder of Conservative Home, and Matt Ridley, the climate science denier, who also writes a column for uh, Times. So there you can see how they are purveying all aspects of society. So these little groups that are little known, um, present themselves as independent economists, but actually are working together with um, millionaire businessmen representing private interests, very influential columnists into the right wing uh, mainstream media, um, and people who have uh, participated in a campaign which has been found to be um, fueled by lies, um, you know, election spending breaches and data misuse. Um, so I'm not sure how independent they actually are, but that gives you an example of those people pushing that debate in the UK at the moment. I think that's being very fair, saying you don't know quite how independent they really are. <laughs> being very <laughs> diplomatic about it. <laughs> and I think, you know, as you said, the, the, the reason we do these network maps and, you know, these, these webs and, you know, of course, I'd encourage people to go and take a look at them. Is, well, is, is to try and, I'll put all the links in, in the description. You know, is, is to give you that visual representation, you know, to make sure that people do see how they're connected. And, you know, just to give an example of, of how this stuff works, you know, Matt Ridley has a, has a column in The Times. He then quotes something from The Economist for Free Trade. Within that column, he doesn't mention that he's an advisor to this very outfit mm. you know presents them as experts that message can then get picked up by a politician saying well actually have you seen this really interesting column in the times this supports our argument and here we go and off we go and they're all tied together they all have the same economic interests and in lots of cases they even sit on the same boards they sit on the same <laughs> advisory committees you know they were you know they're on the same organizations mm. um and of course that's hard to know but that's why people like us exist to, to mm. point that out and hopefully i guess create an internet footprint that points that exact point out mm. Free press is for. Yes, absolutely. Um, so what do you think this all says about who holds the power in, in, in British politics? <laughs> That's a very good question. I mean, it's not news to, to point out that elites hold power in British politics, you know, whether that's politicians who have all been to the same school, um, you know, all come through, you know, the same party, the same political processes, whether that's like, as we were saying, people who all worked on a referendum campaign together, who then find themselves 
filtering out into different parts of the political sphere. You know, I think it's important when you're talking about British politics, particularly now, to not just see it as MPs and ministers. It's the whole way the system works. So as I was just saying, from the mainstream newspapers to these new little supposedly independent outlets to the think tanks, you know, back to the politicians again, it's all a big circle. It's all a big web. Um, and it's currently controlled by elites who have a common economic interest. And I think as Matt pointed uh, out a bit earlier, um, at the moment politicians and MPs and um, and ministers are too busy with party politics, uh, in-party fighting, little squabbles to actually um, look at the policy. And so that vacuum, as we said before, is being filled. Um, and it's being filled by those organisations with that common interest um, which are not accountable. And in a lot of cases, those organisations that we've been reporting on are completely opaque. They're not transparent. We don't really know who's funding them, although we have sometimes some ideas, but actually we don't, we, we don't have names in most cases. Um, and that's a problem because that brings back to what we said earlier about being a real threat to democracy because they are unaccountable, unelected, and actually at this particular time, they are playing such a big role um, that it's really important that we put them in the spotlight. Mm. Do you, what do you think of the, the pl- well, I don't know if it, how serious the plans are, but the, there's been talk of, of trying to force the BBC to label where donors come from yeah. when they're appearing on, on, top, on like, say, BBC Breakfast or, yeah. or on Question Time, for yeah. example. Like, the first t- time I came across the Taxpayers Alliance was on Question Time. Um, I can't remember the name of the woman who was there on uh, representing them, but I remember just being baffled as as to why a group called the Taxpayers Alliance was so pro Brexit. I was like, <laughs> is what what? Like what are you why are you why are you just saying that like no deal is a reasonable idea? Like mm. that's just a horrible idea. Mm. And then obviously I went and looked and um then every week now you see someone almost ripped from from a think tank or like mm. a some foundation or a charity and, and seem to be always fairly pro Brexit. And it, do do you think that labeling where their donors came from would would make people doubt what they were saying more or do you think people would just sort of switch that off unless they wanted to care about where the money was coming from i mean i think it's really important to declare when you've got an interest which is relevant to the topic you're talking about so you know for example if you know you were the author of the think tank report on energy policy and that report was funded by bp or shell yes that should be declared and that's quite easy the problem is, it's often not that simple, right? And as we've just been describing, these things are all interconnected. They're all essentially the same people, but that allows them to wear different hats when it's convenient, right? So it's very easy for them to funnel either money or resources of of whatever sort through another one of those organizations and just say, if you're only going to go one step back, you know, this is the people. So it's actually much more about regulating what products are allowed to sell, essentially, you know, whether that's ideas or whether that's access, you know. Um, and it's about trying to regulate the the transparency laws, getting better transparency laws in place right at the point of origin. So, you know, that they have to declare themselves. People can Google now. People are pretty good at that, right? So like you said, you know, Heard Taxpayers Alliance on the radio. You know, you can Google their name and find out a lot about them mm. in theory, except, of course, currently you can't because they're not really forced to declare that stuff. So that's really where the issue lies. And, you know, and the, and the BBC itself has a responsibility if the organisation itself doesn't point that out to point that out for them. And we see this a lot in climate change, right? So they'll bring someone on who has a controversial, controversial view on climate change. And often behind that is some sort of private fossil fuel money or, or money that has a particular interest in that. 
And because the presenter perhaps isn't clued up enough about who this person or organization is, they, mm. don't, they don't have the tools to do that. And that's where they have a responsibility, an editorial and journalistic responsibility. They should know who they're talking to and where they're coming from. And if they don't know those things or they can't find out those things, they probably shouldn't be talking to them. Mm. I guess that's a fair point. <laughs> um, now, you, we kind of touched on this um, earlier. I think you mentioned about the, the UK becoming more and more Americanized in, in the way their political system operates. Um, I've always kind of imagined that sort of both culturally and politically we're about between five and ten years downstream from America. Uh, like that's that's a very rough sort of, <laughs> but like I, I feel like we're not. It's, it's not that far off to to, to suggest that like they, they seem to just be like a little bit further ahead on on sort of like trends, like cultural trends, or or even on sort of the political side of things. They just tend to be a little bit more extreme in their beliefs. Um, like, do you think that the the climate denial lobby can have the same sort of impact in the UK as they've managed to have in the US in in like successfully basically buying off the interests of one party because as as much as like it's quite obvious that the conservatives aren't as concerned about climate change as say the green party or the liberal democrats or even labor are that they they are like doing something and that they they kind of realize that whilst maybe they're skeptical about how fast things need to change that they do realize they probably need to change like do you think that this lobby can be as successful in changing the sort of the the group think of, of the conservative party in the same way they managed to do with the Republican Party. Um, just before answering that question, I just point out to a leader in the Daily Telegraph today, mm-hmm. um, which is a fascinating read if if you haven't seen it. Which is uh, basically saying Margaret Thatcher was right; she was the first world leader to be worried about climate change and the effect that it would have on the planet. And actually, there's a space for climate change to be a conservative issue. Um, and I don't think that's true. Richard Nixon created the EPA in like 71. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's really anyway. Less of a poster boy these but, days, well, Nixon. Maybe. <laughs> it's, it's basically referring to a 1988 speech that she made um, in which she was um, expressing her concerns about uh, about damage to the planet regarding burning fossil fuels. And actually, that's a really... It's a really powerful read because it comes from the Daily Telegraph. Had it been from mm. The Guardian, I think people would have been like, oh, well, yeah. yeah we'll roll their okay. eyes, yeah. <laughs> we know. Um, but actually, it's quite interesting that this is a paper who still have columnists like Christopher Broker, B- Booker, sorry, who's a climate science denier, uh, who writes regular column for The Telegraph. And that same paper is yet taking a leader stance, so an editorial stance of saying, well, wait a minute, actually, in the heat wave and all, you know, everybody's talking about it at the moment. We're deciding that actually this can be a Tory issue as well. And it can push economic growth as well. And there's all these debates around it. Um, and so I think climate science denial in the UK will have a different impact on um, policy and on the Tory party than it has in the US. I think in the US, we've seen a bit more outright man-made climate change is a lie or it's a uh, Hoax invented by the Chinese or whatever people <laughs> want to say, but actually in the what sort of idiot says that <laughs> <laughs> they use a pig tan. Yeah. Um, but at, at least in the UK, um, it's a bit more perverse than that because it's actually talking about deregulation, and that I think is where the main climate science denial and libertarian free market thinking works together. In that. If you're pushing for deregulation, often you're pushing for lowering food and environmental standards. You're pushing for cutting red tape 
And a lot of that red tape is actually about animal welfare, environmental protection, whether it be in climate change or um, things like conservation issues or deforestations, issues like that. And I think the climate science denial space in the UK has seen Brexit and this deregulation debate that the free market organisations are pushing at the moment as the hook um, and as a space for them to push their own climate denial agenda. Uh, so I think actually we have to really look out for it in a bit more of a careful way than what's happening in the US where it tends to be a bit more blatant and out there. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think it works both ways and Claire's already touched upon it. You know, in the US, you see much more outright climate science denial. You see much more uh, politicians or, or important people saying climate change isn't real. It's mm-hmm. not driven by humans. You do you see very little of that here. And that's absolutely true. Um, you know, all of our politicians generally accept that climate change is, is real and driven by human um, human activities however they have a sense of denial about how serious the problem is mm. and how bad things are going to get mm. and if that's your stance if you don't think it's actually that big a deal then you can push for the things that Chloe's talking about you can push for deregulation because actually if it's all fine fine let's deregulate let's cut environmental standards you know let's continue to have rampant free market um, capitalism and just to go right back to what Chloe said about that that telegraph article you know yes of course there's space on the right and you know of course there's space for supposed capitalist solutions to, to, to climate change. But they're not rampant free market, completely mm. deregulated answers. Mm. You know, mm. this is about thinking very carefully about who it is that pays for what is clearly a massive market failure. You know, Nick Stern back in 2006 released a report that called climate change the biggest market failure of all time. And there's, you know, not many people now who aren't just free market ideologues who would disagree with that. You know, absolutely, that's true. And the way that you fix that is you buy, you make the polluter pay. You know, put a cost on carbon. And that's something that we're still a very, very long way away from actually doing. And the reason is because you still have this climate science denial in the UK that says it's not really a problem. You don't need to worry about it too much. Well, I, honestly, I've always been a little bit baffled by the kind of paradox between like the conservative party, like just the word conservative <laughs> um, and the idea that, you know, we don't really need to look after or or planet essentially i think but i think in britain we have a little bit more sort of love of the the countryside and you kind of make that emotional appeal to people about it and you know we love our green belt and i think you, you probably that's probably why it's not quite as as, as silly and, and blatant as, as it is in america um compared to like it's just a little bit more subversive in in the uk but um, you can't you mentioned there about putting a, a cost on carbon um now in there's a, a u.s republican whose foundation name i cannot remember right now but um, i know policy exchange are doing like a very similar report on what they call a carbon dividend Mm -hmm. where essentially it would be a gradually increasing carbon tax um, that will be paid as a form of like basic income to everybody in in the country so that to offset the cost of carbon and then sort of try and find a free market way of pushing people towards low carbon options like do you think that's a a realistic thing that could happen do you think that'd be a good way to deal with it or, or, or do you think that's kind of i don't know just being a bit sort of optimistic that, that people like big business would go for it you know i think we've been having debates about particularly economic or market methods to deal with this problem for decades um there are lots of lots of ways to do it and in theory they all work they all work fine the fundamentals of no, all communism of works in theory. <laughs> fair point um, but but you're absolutely right so the, the key really is in the delivery but the fundamentals remain the same, which is you want to make behavior that you want to discourage expensive. 
you know, so you want to make polluters pay for polluting, which is a, a social wrong that, you know, we all agree we need to address. And that will ultimately cost the economy more in the long term than the benefits you get in the short term. There's a lot of very good modeling that shows that. So you make that expenses. One way you can do that is by putting a tax on it. And then you make behavior that you want to encourage cheaper. So the nice thing about a fairly simple carbon tax is you could potentially pump that back into the economy by you know, cutting VAT on things that people like to buy in the supermarket. You know, reducing income tax, we'd all quite like that. You know, this, these are all you know, positive things you could do with that money. And at the same time, you're still getting that behavioral change that you've encouraged. So you know, there's lots of different ways you can cut this, but fundamentally, the, the, the fundamental point of all of this is you have to make the polluter pay. And at the moment, we're not. That's why our emissions continue to go up. That's why we're not addressing climate change properly. It's because you're still not having to pay what is still a fundamental part of your activity and a fundamentally costly part of your activity. Not got much to add, although I'll just point out that um, uh, all the big companies, all the big oil companies at the moment uh, are demanding a carbon tax. This is something that they're demanding because they want, you know, a market indicator, uh, because for them, the change is market led. And this is why they're pushing for this tax. And the only thing I'd add is that the tax cannot be a license to pollute. It has to be something that is seen as, you know, um, a change of behavior, a change of, of, the, of the economics around polluting, a change of the carbon market, as Matt said, rather than being seen as like, oh, well, we're paying a tax, so all fine now, we can go on and, and uh, burn fossil fuels. Want. Absolutely right. And again, it goes back to the delivery, right? If you put a carbon price at 20 pounds a ton, it's not going to do anything. Mm. You know, the, the companies can operate that. They even have built that into their models. You know, we, we've written pieces before that show uh, Shell and Exxon have internal carbon prices they operate on. So that if carbon, uh, if climate policy was to really pick up pace, they could still cope in that in a world where they actually start to have to pay for this. Well, it would be it would be really irresponsible for like so, like a big company to to not be planning for like a really sort of catastrophic and seismic event. Yeah, well, or even just serious climate policy. We, prom- you know, we promise to to withhold uh, warming to to two degrees above pre-industrial levels. We're missing that quite significantly at the yeah. moment. But that is what world leaders have promised. So companies would like I think say, we're on, we're on track for. I think I listened to a cast that really depressed me um, <laughs> from a, a woman who was essentially the the climate re- climate reporter for like ten years for the New York Times, and she was like, "Well, we're probably on track for six to ten degrees." And I was like. <laughs> Oh, well, I do not think I can do that. Like, <laughs> Sitting in a sweltering office right yeah. now, you're sitting there thinking that's not such a good idea. Yeah, well, like, yeah. I think two weeks ago, Cork yeah. was hotter than Los Angeles mm. for like a week. Mm. It was like 31 degrees in Cork. Mm. Like, it has never been 31 degrees. In Cork. <laughs> like, like Daryl Breen used to do a bit when um, a, a show I saw of his that mm. he was like, look, in Australia and it was like 30 degrees at like 12 o'clock at night and he was like what is this this would never happen in Ireland if this happened in Ireland we'd be waking our kids up in the middle of the night being like you go into the beach you'll never see this again <laughs> and all of a sudden we're, we're at a point where like that, that is and it's kind of like forcing people to confront it it definitely is and I think you know it's important there's two things that are important to I think say one is you know I think most of the analysis shows we're kind of on track for three and a half to four degrees of warming that's still really bad don't get me wrong like <laughs> six to ten degrees is really horrible but you know three, three and a half to four degrees given that you know we've had a about degrees so far you know we've we've said that a long time ago we said we think under two degrees we're just about okay but you know that's not definitely safe it's just kind of maybe safe um so you know three and a half to four degrees is certainly not acceptable so that's one thing and the other thing is you know with these heat waves what's been really interesting i think for the last couple of weeks is seeing people are now starting to talk about climate change because they're starting to 
feel it in a visceral way rather mm. than just being this weird far off problem but again it's important with that to say you know we can't necessarily say this exact heat wave is down to the emissions we put into the environment but what we can say someone gave me a really great metaphor the other day which i repeat here which is you know in baseball they had a big steroids problem right and so that all their batters were on steroids and they were hitting loads of home runs right and so you can't pinpoint exactly which one of those home runs was down to the steroids that that guy took yesterday. But you can definitely say that some of them were, mm. you know, and that's basically what we're seeing now with these extreme weather events, right? You know, we can't, you know, the attribution science is not quite there yet to say this exact heat wave, that exact drought, whatever, because it's all within a range. You know, these things do happen over time, but we can definitely say that some of them are, you know, we're comfortable with that. So again, that's really important. And it's, it's been amazing to see this heat wave has brought out people and comment pieces in the newspapers talking about climate change. It's been kind of refreshing after you know a few years of not really talking about it that's actually really nice that the daily telegraph were talking about that's that's not something right. i would never expect to have seen them taking an editorial stance on but then i don't know anyway to i'm not margaret thatcher <laughs> <laughs> uh, no the the green libertarian in me is uh sort of screaming when you talk about there's a need to to let to have some sort of carbon price and and saying well you know, people people are very environmentally conscious these days, more so than, than ever before. And people look for the low carbon option. They look for like the local sort of more sustainable farming. They'll they'll take like anything that they know is like homegrown. It <laughs> just adds like a pound to the price and people just go crazy for it, mm. um, which is fantastic marketing. But do you think that that kind of desire is, is it would be able to, to drive companies towards the lowest carbon options without any need for government in- intervention? No, I, I really don't think so. Um, I mean, I think, you know, individual behavior change is great and amazing. And I encourage, you know, you meet people regularly who've not taken in seven years or whatever they've done or decide to go vegetarian or do all these things. And it's that's great. And it's encouraged at an individual level. I'm not so keen on the pushing others to join or your heritage kind of thing. But mm. I think... That's that. That's to be praised, but actually, real change. We're we're, be, we're going beyond that. Like we need such level of ambition that it needs to be a system change, and it needs to be a change from the top. And I think people in people make consumer choices, and they're sending a debate, and they're, and they're sending a message. Sorry, and they're taking part in that debate by making a political decision every time they decide not to take the plane or, you know, to go plastic-free or to uh, skip a meal with meat or whatever it is, that's a political signal that they're taking a stance. But actually, for the big corporations and for going down from four degrees of warming to two, we need a system change that I believe requires central regulation. And then, you know, Chloe's absolutely right to say, you know, basically the personal is political there, right? So those small those small decisions that you might not see as a political act are definitely a political act. And then that does exactly what you're t- talking about, right? Which is creates the political space for then that to be the popular behavior, to, for that to be the popular route that goes down. But, you know, companies don't act altruistically. They act for profit. They just what? do. You know, <laughs> revelations coming out on this podcast right now, yeah. right? But, it's you the first know, time I've ever heard of that. <laughs> exactly right. And, uh, um, you know, Fine, you might get certain ethical companies popping up, but the ones we currently have running the world, running the show, they're not doing it for that. So they're going to need an economic reason to do that, and that, that's by hitting their profits if they if they don't. But as you say, the way that the individual feeds into that, and actually this is an argument that Simon Lewis made in The Guardian the other day, is by getting involved in the politics of it. You know, is by making those small decisions that give those political signals, just as Chloe said, to politicians that this is what the world actually really wants. So stop listening to your rich mate who is, you know, funneling a report at you through a shady think tank and telling you this thing to say, and start listening to the people. 
you know and i think that's fundamentally how this 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 issue will change mm. well so basically like for example we have the 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 policy that the conservative put in place like last year mm-hmm. um last year to ban all all diesel cars mm. um by 2040 or so. sorry ban all petrol and diesel cars by 2040 but immediately it becomes a case of well they might be banning petrol and diesel cars but you know it doesn't solve the problem of how we get the electric into the cars <laughs> like as if you're burning you're all you're doing is moving the carbon from the car to the power station like do do you think there's just sort of like a lack of i don't know grand global vision <laughs> for like a way to genuinely transition from um somewhere we rely on oil or natural gas to to somewhere where we can say okay we're going to take the power and we have to it has to be like 80% by the time we're going like fossil fuel free in cars that the the power we're creating has to be 80% renewable energy um and do you think like the the amount of money that's required for that sort of investment is something that you you're going to get the political capital to 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 get behind yeah well, i mean again it depends just a simple question yeah just a small question there. again <laughs> again it depends on who you think should pay so I don't think the individual should pay for that. Mm. I think the people who have caused the problem or the organisations that have caused the problem, you know, the fossil fuel companies for the last 30 years should probably be the ones paying for that. And, you know, we've, we've done lots of work and others have done lots of work. The fossil fuel companies have known this is a really serious problem for decades. You know, we're talking 30 years here, minimum, probably longer. Yet they continue to behave in a completely socially irresponsible manner, which, again, just completely cuts through any idea that companies will do something because they're nice. They won't. They're not. Okay, so that's who should pay for this. And so, yes, we have to find a way to, to make that happen. And getting the political capital for that, yes, is difficult because these people have lots of money, they influence politics, they're part of this political elite. But then again, you have this groundswell of people who understand that climate change isn't an environmental problem, it's a social problem, it's a political problem. You know, and the more that people get behind that idea and start making these, these their, their own choices and putting pressure on policymakers and decision makers to make this happen, yes, we can absolutely get there. And in terms of like the vision to make these big changes, there absolutely is the vision. You know, absolutely. They're, the solutions are talked about a lot, but you're absolutely right. It's the delivery, it's the execution of those solutions that's the problem. But you cannot do this until you start charging and penalizing the people who have created the problem for that problem. I don't think the vision's being carried out um, within the government, though. I think that's the main problem that we've seen. We've got we've got 2050 targets. Uh, you know, we've got uh, a Paris Agreement. We have all these long-term global uh, visions, and the, the the science and the research um, on these topics is is huge. And some people definitely have the vision and also have the solutions in many cases. But when you have a government that it's so unstable that might not exist by Christmas. <laughs> it's a bit difficult to have that vision today in the UK to say, well, we're banning petrol and diesel cars by 2040. This is how we're going to do it. Step one, step two, step three. Because mm. actually at the moment, in a, in a year and a half, we don't even know if we're going to be in the EU outside, <laughs> have a, a, a government at all, or have no deal, stay in the customs union. So when there's so pressing short issues mm. um, that also keep politicians in power, and uh, that that's that's very true. Like actually, very few politicians want to take the really difficult decisions of saying, okay, we we now need to hit a level of ambition that is going to change people's lives, and it's going to be about you're going to have to change your car at some stage. No one is ready to politically me- make that decision because it's political suicide. 
Um, and so on Caroline th- Lucas keeps fighting the good fight. <laughs> she keeps fighting the good fight, but we need more, and we need we actually need the next prime minister to be fighting that fight too. And until that happens, and until we're into short-term party politics, the vision will mainly stay in civil society and not really be applied to um, to the politics, which is really where it needs to it needs to happen. I was I was actually talking to to Jackson from the the Politicalists, who are a great blog on on Medium, about. This, the idea that we lack a vision, like someone, someone with like an like a like a big vision, someone willing to just like paint like a picture of exactly mm. how they believe the future should be, like radically different to to what we have as the the status quo at the minute. We haven't had that for he he, he was a self prescribed centrist dad and thought that Blair's early years had a was at least a vision there of what they wanted to create, and they came in with this sort of radical energy after what was it, like 20 something years of conservative government and they were ready to change and like and, and i honestly feel like it, there's that sort of momentum in no pun intended in the labor party mm. <laughs> in to to come in and, and like genuinely shake things up like do you feel they're pushing this issue hard enough or do you think it's sort of because to me it feels almost like they have other stuff to talk about <laughs> and it's almost just expected that their voters will care about it, but they don't actually say anything about it. Well, and you know, I think again, this goes back to what I said about climate change is not an environmental problem. You know, climate change cuts the core of all the social issues that we're worried about. You know, whatever you think about them, people are worried about them. Immigration, you know, where we're going to get our food from, mm. how much that costs. You know, climate change is involved in all of this, right? And so I think the first thing we need to do is stop seeing climate change as a niche issue. And in fact, stop seeing it as an issue. It just cuts across everything. It's and the that, issue. You know, right. It cuts across, you know, Obama called it, you know, the great, the greatest political problem of a generation. Mm. Well, the it, Ministry of Defense think it's the greatest, uh, the Ministry of Defense yeah. in America think it's the right. greatest threat to humanity on right. the planet. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Like more than like... ISIS yeah. or like, I don't know, North Korea yeah. or, you know, a, a, a more hmm. military um, expansionist China. Like the, none of those are at the top of their list. Well, well they are fueled by it, though. Exactly. A, lot of, a lot of the research has shown that a lot wars now and guerrilla movements and um, even in, in Syria, hmm. uh, so, some of that is being fueled by climate change as a not as a direct cause of, a, um, you know, someone has set themselves on fire but as 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 a as a deep rooted creating social unrest type of cause mm. and things like water shortages for example in africa have led to have been proven to be one of the causes one of a factor a multiplying factor for for violence and war and mm. that's probably increasingly going to be the case mm. absolutely and you know and until that we start kind of understanding in mainstream politics that fact that climate change goes into everything it will remain this weirdly polarised issue. It makes absolutely no sense that the left should care about climate change and the right don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and I actually don't think that's true as well. I think you know you have a lot of conversations with people on the centre right who do actually care about this. They just don't realise they do. For exactly the reasons that Chloe's just spoken about, right? They care about conflict. They care about migration. Yeah, you never they care really get about... to see it talked about from like a security-centric issue. Yeah, security-centric issue or, you know, an Im- immigration issue or, or like a, a, an economic issue. The cost of food will go up because there will be problems with supply. You know, everyone gets really outraged when avocados get really expensive. <laughs> like multiply that to things that actually matter, that we actually really rely on, grains and cereals that, you know, the world actually relies on to feed themselves. And all of a sudden you understand that climate change isn't a left-right issue at all. It's just, like you say, the issue. And so that polarisation needs to be broken down. And again, hopefully the work we do and others do explores that, right? We, we very consciously 
don't explore climate change as an environmental issue. We try to explore it as a political issue and as a social justice issue. And this is exactly why. Um, no, I know the, uh, the UK government made the very intelligent decision last year to sell off the Green Investment Bank just as it became economically profitable. <laughs> Talk about socialising the costs and nationalising the or privatising the profits. But <laughs> there's a lot of spending that has to take place in, in this sort of sphere. And um, I mentioned just before we, we were t- uh, recording just about a discussion I've been listening to Ben Shapiro have about like, what's the cost of transition like how fast should we be making this this move is there like issues like pollution that we should be um looking at first and and you know potentially he would believe that that michael gove is actually making the right moves in Mm -hmm. saying okay we need to cut down plastic because that's going to reduce our fossil fuel use anyway because oil is plastic essentially Mm -hmm. and do you think that the uk government are at least taking a reasonable step forward in in the way they're dealing with pollution or do you think it's more sort of Michael Gove's own attempts to, you know, blow up his reputation amongst younger people and push for the sort of youth vote to come Such back to cynic. the Conservatives. Such a cynic. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I think it's a really good question. So, I mean, the, the fundamental problem with climate change and environmental issues generally is that you can make some progress, but climate change is a problem on a clock. You know, the longer we don't do this, the worse the impact's going to be, right? So it's not a case of choosing when we can do this we have to do it we have to do it now and we have to do it properly now in fact yesterday preferably 20 years ago was regret <laughs> right but in the absence of a time machine this is where we're at so it's about the depth of the emissions cuts now it's not about putting policies in place that mean we can do some and that's what we're still fundamentally failing at right so it's great to have these policies but they're an order of magnitude from where they need to be so firstly there's that issue and then on the michael gove issue you know it's really interesting like you know, Politicians come up with good policies sometimes because they actually make sense, you know. And so, you know, I, I don't want to speak to specific policies necessarily, but sure, like obviously some environmental policies that are implemented, you know, by by Michael Gove, by whoever, make make total sense. They do good. They're coming out of defra. They're meant to, mm. right? But yeah, this is definitely a convenient position politically for Michael Gove to be in. It softens his image with a particular constituency of people who he previously wasn't liked very much by. And Michael Gove, as we know from his previous positions, is very very good at that. The other thing that we need to say about Michael Gove is he's absolutely plugged into these networks that we've been talking about, you know, in the first half of, of our conversation, right? He's absolutely attached to this Tufton Street network of these right-wing think tanks who are pushing really hard for deregulation. So the proof is in the pudding, right? So, you know, he, he's put forward these recommendations for an environmental watchdog, which is pretty highly criticised for having no teeth. You know, that's one example, for example, where you could argue that actually he's deregulatory urges have maybe overtaken his urge to actually do something serious there so you know you have to take it on a case-by-case basis but it's also important to understand where Gove comes from as a politician I think. No I completely agree with that and I think you know the the, the plastic policy has been widely welcomed and um, you know again the the time frame may be a bit late but you know never too late great okay let's go for it now let's do that there's probably a really angry plastic lobby um, uh, ringing Michael Gove's office at the moment but Okay, but actually, what's interesting is that there was public opinion in favour of that, and the public op- and things like David Attenborough's Blue Planet and um, things like that had tipped public opinion already. So they made the move when the public opinion was on their side already. Wait, Whereas- have politicians decided <laughs> to know. change their mind? <laughs> Whereas, what we're ta- the kind of ambition we're talking about now is going beyond that. Is going actually is is what I was saying earlier about making this tough. 
decisions, which are seen by some as political suicide because they're telling people, yeah, we're going to have to put a price on carbon. We're going to have to, to, to change the way we actually live. We're going to have to change the way we operate. We're going to have to change the, how the economy is focused. And, and we're going to have to change all these things that are going to anger a lot of people. And they're going to make a lot of people lose a lot of money and create wealth elsewhere. Um, and by moving into, but, but by moving in that way, obviously it's welcome, but they need to move in places where the public can follow um, rather than following opinion. And one example of that, for example, you're talking about uh, tra- transitioning and all this idea of transitioning. So workers' rights need to be absolutely at the forefront because we keep saying we're going to decarbonize economy um, and there's places like in Aberdeen or in Scotland where they're heavily heavily dependent on the oil industry the oil sector and still today in 2018 there's young people coming out of school and signing up to do an oil exploration course at Aberdeen University now that's that's crazy because we said we'd hit zero by 2050 if 2050 is only in 30 years if you're years if you're 18 today you'll very much still be working in 30 years um, and what will you do then? Are you train? Are we training a generation of people today that will have no job in twenty years? That's crazy. And actually, that's not making that transition. And that's what I mean by getting ahead of the public opinion. Like these, uh, these decisions and this transition needs to be prepared now, and it's not. And there's a lot of people who have worked really, really hard. I mean, in those industries to provide much needed energy. And this is nothing to do with those people not being valued. And that's where there's a sort of blue collar worker antagonism against climate change in a way we've seen in the coal mines in the US. And um, for example, that that could well happen in, in Scotland today because actually they're not being prepared. And we're still letting these young people getting jobs that will not exist in 10, 20, 30 years time. And that's where really the transitioning needs to happen. And as Matt said, it's Climate change is, you know, purveying all these, all these other issues. It's a huge social issue, and the people need to be put in the first, you know, as a priority on this. And at the moment, they're not really. So to to wrap up, like, what say you had, you know, you could give three recommendations to the UK government on on how to, or maybe to <laughs> some less partisan body, but someone to to say, right, okay, how are we going to deal with? Um, the influence of think tanks on on the climate change discussion. How are we going to talk about what we're going to do in a reasonable way, and, and then how are we going to implement it? Like, what, what sort of what would be your starting point for that? <laughs> it's a very tricky question. I mean, I guess we come up from an interesting perspective as well because we're journalists and we're not campaigners, right? So our job is to reveal stuff, to try and tell a story, to try, you know, to ensure that we're telling a true story of, of, of what's going on. So I guess linked to that, a recommendation is obviously increasing transparency laws, you know. So firstly, bolstering the ones we already have, and then secondly, increasing transparency laws, right? If we can't access the information to understand what is actually going on and, and tell these stories properly, then that, that's a huge democratic problem, mm-hmm. let alone a huge environmental problem. So I guess that's the first one. Maybe we can do a back and forth. We can share mm. this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just sort of pick up on what I was I was saying just just now um I think there's a about this vision I and I think we we constantly as climate journalists we're constantly talking about these targets that you know we know all about and a lot of people actually 
don't know don't really know what it means and it's all a bit jargon but i think those t- those targets need to be made a bit more tangible and people need to be able to uh, understand a bit more what it means um and what it means is is starting that transition phase and it, it, it's starting to really put a plan in place which is transparent as matt said that's really important to to decarbonize the economy in a planned way which at the moment we are using lots of words and jargon and targets and emissions and things but i don't think it's very concrete in people's mind i guess yeah again again linked to that you know it's, it's about supporting people who who tell those deep true complex stories you know and, and that links into obviously the agenda we're plugged into which is supporting independent media right so we all know that there's there's been massive problems with the mainstream press for a long long time which have really come to a head in the last couple of years you know trump and brexit brought this into a, a light that's never been shown in before um you know and that's why it is important to you know support things like gist like dsmog mm. you know independent media who, who shameless plugs yeah shame absolutely shameless <laughs> plugs. i'm nothing if not a shameless plugger but it, it genuinely is true right you know the, there's the reason that you know you're you're involved in the things you do and that we do what we do and it's because we believe these stories are really important and being able to tell them is you know absolutely crucial to a well-functioning society and we've seen what happens when you don't have that mm. anything you'd like to add <laughs> Uh, no, I think we've said it all. <laughs> okay. Well, um, thanks very much for chatting with me, guys. Really interesting conversation. Uh, really enjoyed it. So Appreciate it. Yeah. Any, any last-minute plugs you want to put in or, or anything? I think I've already said it, but, you know, supporting independent media, going to DSmog UK and checking out our website, um, and also checking out things like the Media Fund, which are this big coalition of independent media outlets, um, and that's a way you can support it all. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to tell all your friends about this fantastic show that you've been listening to. Until next time, thanks for listening.